1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Rick Van Noy about his new book, Sudden Spring, Stories of Climate Adaptation in a Climate Change South. Dr. Van Noy, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's good to be with you, Chris.
1: So, Dr. Van Noy, I was wondering if you'd be willing to start off by telling us a little bit about
0: yourself. Well, sure. Um... I uh, teach English at Radford University in Virginia, and I've been doing that for about twenty years. Um, Originally, I'm from New Jersey. Went to schools in Colorado and Washington State, and moved around a lot. And probably because of all that moving around, I got interested in the idea of the sense of place, and uh, that was the first book I worked on was about literary cartographers, writers, and who were interested in uh, who used maps in their writing, but but inevitably the map couldn't communicate something about the natural world, um, so they had to write about it. And I'm also interested and fascinated with the natural world, and and uh, uh, the next book I worked on was about kids in and nature. And it was more about you know what we could do and in, in our little corner of the world and um, and why uh, contact with nature was important for young people, and. Um, and it was called A Natural Sense of Wonder. And that title kind of came from uh, a Rachel Carson essay. Um, and of course, when I was kind of casting about for a title for this more recent book, and you know, I kind of came back again to thinking about and hopefully honoring the work of Rachel Carson. So um, teach creative nonfiction, American literature. Um, and, uh, and that's always a question that gets asked is why someone in English is interested in uh, in climate change, and uh, I can talk some more about that if you want or or whatever direction you want to go in yeah, let's follow that so i i there's a couple pieces in
1: the front end of your book that I wanted to to quote quickly before we move into the book directly got it you you say, and I really appreciate. This dialogue, and hopefully, this helps our readers or our listeners understand a little bit more about the book itself and, and what you're after. That we need to hear more of the communities who are creating a better quality of life for their citizens, growing sustainably, and maintaining a healthy environment. And then you go on just shortly after that to say, This is not a book about the fact that climate change is happening, nor that we may be reaching an irreversible apocalyptic tipping point nor is it expressly about the politics of climate change. Instead, you focused on something else. So, could you invite us into a little bit more about how you came to
0: write this book and and what it focuses on? Sure. Um Yeah, I guess um I came to write about this this topic. I mean, I, you know, I was like I think anyone who's paying attention, I was reading about Climate change daily. Um, even when I was working on the last book, uh, there's an uh, I was working on an essay about trying to find a skating pond and and how you really can't find a skating pond anymore. Um, in fact, one of the things I cite in the book is some statistics about Thoreau and his pond, and you know it used to ice out on April 1st, and it ice out ice is out now about May 15th or March 15th, so about two weeks earlier. Um, so, I was paying attention, and um but also sort of frustrated with why that information wasn't getting through to people and why the kind of the needle wasn't moving. Um, and I think I thought in part that the information was too distant or too abstract for people. Um, I know that one kind of galvanizing moment was, and I write about this in the book a little bit, was I was far north in Alaska in Glacier Bay. And I was in a boat, and the boat was turning around in the bay. And you know, we saw one of those glaciers calve um, or break off, and you know, and and then you know, pound into the water below and make a big splash. And all the while, the National Park Service was there, and they were talking about climate change in national parks. Um, and I thought, well, you know, that actually could be an interesting project to talk about how it's affecting our parks maybe if it's affecting people in a more per, in a personal way you know it could help make an impact but then i thought um there are some parks in my own region where i live that are going to be impacted and i really thought well maybe that's also the key is honing in on places um kind of localizing this you know honing in on places that are impacted Including, I went to Cumberland Island National Park. I went to the Everglades, but honing in on places that are impacted, talking with people on the ground, um, seeing, asking what they're seeing. Um, You know, I think I say I I, I hypothesized in the book that just as there are no atheists in foxholes, there would be no climate deniers in uh, low-lying places. But you know, that wasn't always the case. But still, it was interesting Mm -hmm. to talk to people. Learn about their—I don't know—their views on it. Sometimes those views are rather entrenched, and maybe we'll get into the—you know—we can get into the denial or something like that a little bit later. Um, but that's what I wanted to do, and I really thought um, that we're hearing enough uh, of the damage that's being done. Um, although I also wanted to find out—you know—I wanted to find find out more about the damage, and especially on a local scale. Um, but I also want to find out about the solutions. What are people actually trying to do? And what are they going to have to do? What are the plans and, wh- and what happens if we don't plan what happens? What are the kind of immediate effects in places like, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, or Charleston, South Carolina, or Miami, Florida, you know, some of these are well known in terms of talking about climate change, but I definitely want to get there on the ground and, and, and see what they're seeing yeah the people aspect is
1: comes out in this book the societal aspect and to go into the book you you line the chapters up with different locations.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the choice to hit these specific spots? Sure I mean um, I mean, I guess I would do some preliminary research and find out you know um Places that are being written about that are seeing some, you know, sea level rise or, or other problems associated with climate change. And then I would try to find out, well, who could I talk to about that and who's doing something about that? And, and then I would try to schedule, um, you know, some kind of contact, some kind of interview with them and, and then go visit them. And, and then, of course, some of the really fun things to do was also set up these interviews But between and before, also just talk to other people on the street about, um, you know, what they think. So I went to Charleston, South Carolina, for example, one day after Hurricane Matthew, and people were sweeping up. And, um, you know, I asked one person what she thinks we have to do. And she said something like, you know, we've really got to come together and we've got to face reality. And, um, And I also tell a story about a fish being you know kind of washed over the seawall over the battery in charleston south carolina and um i had to stop and (laughs) try to catch that fish and then while i stopped a um a local tour guide took a video and so i talk about that in the book and then we talked for a while about um impacts in south carolina um So there were stories like that that were really uh, interesting, you know, people in random places in a bar in Key West, in a restaurant in New Orleans. Um, I even ran into Al Gore's former pilot, Air Force Two, when I was in Hollywood, Florida. I was just walking around inspecting a seawall and looking for or I had heard that water came in over this one spot and I wanted to go look and see if I could see kind of any damage, get a kind of visual on it. And then I asked someone if, uh, you know, if they'd seen water come in over the seawall and, and that person sat down and they kind of asked me, well, why? <laughs> and I said, and, that, and that's always a, there was always a pause at that point. Cause, um, you know, you want to have a, a good relationship with people and, um, you didn't want I didn't want to just start out about, you know, I don't know, uh, a topic that might be uncomfortable in some places it was uncomfortable, some places people didn't want to talk, didn't want to talk about it. But in Florida, I went ahead and said, I'm writing a book on climate change. And, and then the person offered that, yeah, I used to fly, um, Air Force two for Gore. And then of course I was in Broward County and that led to some, you know, a discussion or a, or a, a segue or a little, you know, I don't know, um, uh, tangent into, you know, uh Al Gore and what the what the what might have what might have been, I guess. Um of course the problem there is that Al Gore maybe also politicized it. And and that's one of the things I was trying to cut through. I was trying to cut through some of the polarization of this issue. And that's really what I found is that you can go to just about any of these places, be they red, be they blue, and um and it's not a political issue when it's more of a pragmatic issue. They've got water in their streets and they need to do something about it and they need plans. And, and some of them may even need to think about a plan B, which could, could involve what they call strategic retreat, which means, you know, moving some places or declaring some places as a repetitive loss and repetitive loss means that it's gotten flooded so many times that it just has to be written off. Um, you know, that's not a too distant future in some places like Norfolk and and parts of Miami. Um so I wanted to ask, you know, you know, are we are we realizing that? Are we facing that? And um and some would say yes, and but you know, sometimes people who are affected by those homes um you know, they also had a hard time reconciling with it. So um but the people aspect of it was you know, to me the most interesting, it helps tell the stories. I thought that Um, Going back to what I said earlier about, you know, we've got all this kind of climate information data, we have charts, we have graphs, um, we have trend lines that point to some bad news, I've seen those in, in presentation rooms, you know, I see that, you know, carbon is over 400 parts per million, but what is 400 parts per million? What does that mean? And how do we translate that to something that's affecting people's lives? And so that's where I headed and that's what I wanted to find out. Yeah. And that's one
1: of the things I really appreciate about the book, Rick, is you bring in a lot of the climate science, you quote a lot of the experts in climate science, but you also bring in this aspect of these, these nuances of kind of the risk communication sciences, the biases, and, and those come out in the stories that you tell with these people. So Let's go to chapter two. is is on Norfolk, like you just you just mentioned. Let's go into some of the details around your experience in Norfolk.
0: All right. Um, so I went to Norfolk on a couple days, but um, one of the days, the memorable days that I went to Norfolk, was on a sunny day uh, flood event. And if you don't know what a sunny day flood event is, basically when. Um, it hasn't really even rained, or maybe there's been a storm, or maybe there's been some um, some winds off the coast um, that have pushed the water up. Um, but otherwise, you know, the rain isn't actually causing the flood. But on that day that I was in Norfolk, I was going to get in the into the boat with uh, some people from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, Chris Moore was the kind of the captain. And we were going to get in his boat and do a tour. And I was at a boat ramp, uh, Haven Creek, and I was supposed to meet him there. And actually, even before I got there, there was about a foot of brackish water (laughs) in the road. Um, You know, and I was following my GPS's directions to the Haven Creek boat ramp, but there was a foot of brackish water. And of course, your GPS doesn't just reroute for water, it might, might reroute for traffic. Although that was one of the things I was learning is that they were trying to work on a system that could alert people that, you know, they were in a kind of flood stage. And that's one of the adaptations that people are going to have to deal with. But I'm um, getting to Haven Creek and Chris was even having trouble getting the boat in the water because of the the same situation. Um, The water was flooding the parking lot. And I've got pictures that I show when I do talks about this, about, you know, the parking lot flooded and the, nearby towers lafayette towers where um you couldn't really get in or out of lafayette towers it looked like and this is um on the we're about to get into the lafayette river but we finally get into the boat and we tore around and we're seeing um well we're seeing lots of things we're seeing docks that are underwater waters up to the gas tanks um you know he pointed at some piers at a marina that had to be raised because some of the boats were slipping loose from their moorings and uh and you know floating away during some of these flood events i mean the thing about norfolk is norfolk is seeing about 14 and inches of relative sea level rise you know the norm is more like eight or nine inches on the coast but norfolk is seeing even worse because they're also experiencing um subsidence which is the sinking of the land and there maybe that's for they think several reasons, but the primary reason seems to be what's called, um, Glacial rebound. So when glaciers used to be off the coast, they were pushing the land, um, basically pushing the land up in the way that, you know, if you sit on a mattress an air mattress, you push your end sinks, but the person on the other end might get pushed up. Well, the glaciers did that to the coast for a while. And now the land is gradually rebounding or sinking. Um, There's also some groundwater being taken out in places, and that contributes to it. But because of all that, they've got, because of that, and because of anthropogenic climate change, you know, they've got 14.5 inches of rise. And on that day we were there, um, you know, the fascinating thing, and we know that, we know that 14.5, because of Sewell's Point, which is which the navy keeps so the navy keeps good data on this information and um i think they've kept that since the 20s you know so that's where we can see this and and we can see that the the sea is rising and it's rising at a faster rate Um, and on the day that i'm there some of the piers at the naval base had to be shut down um and, you know, the, the boats are fine, right? The naval ships will be fine, but it's all the infrastructure supporting those boats. It's the electrical lines and gas lines and water and sewer lines, et cetera. Those are some are now getting affected by this by this sea level rise. And so they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to raise those piers. And the other thing there is, is access. So that's one of the things I talked about is, or I wrote about was, you know, imagine that the enemy is upon us and we've got to get our um our sailors to the ships um but there's too much water too much water in the streets and they can't get there so i mean that's one of the things that's that's fascinating is that the the you know the the military for the most part is all over this and and they're not denying that there's a problem and a problem they've got to deal with um the other thing about norfolk and this is why is that's kind of an irony is that Norfolk is, uh, a major, you know, shipping, um, hub and for years and years has, has shipped out, um, coal and coal is responsible for about, we think about 25% of the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. Um, so that led to an irony Irony we were talking, joking about why English major, English professors or writers get interested in climate change. Irony is one of the things that you point out when you're you know, when you're writing about this. Um, but Norfolk, I also got to talk to a community in Norfolk, um, Chesterfield Heights, poor, disadvantaged community. They're seeing some flooding coming into their streets. And some of the local schools were doing some adaptation plans. And those are really interesting things like pervious, pa- uh, um, permeable, permeable pavers instead of the cobblestone streets that they have. And um, they all live on porches, so they don't really want to raise the houses because they like their porches. You know, but, so what else can you do? And, and I guess there are some things. I mean, the main thing I, th- I discovered when I was in Norfolk and what the Chesapeake Bay Foundation kept trying to point out. So I call this chapter our best defense. And I called it our best defense because the Navy's there and the Navy defends us. But when you travel around, you learn from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation that one of the things that helps us defend our coast are these living shorelines. And a living shoreline is a design for a shoreline that incorporates natural features, including oyster shells, oyster shells sometimes in netting. And this has a better chance at um kind of building the shoreline than do hardened shorelines like walls Um, and you know when when you put oyster bags in oysters also attach to them and those even grow and they filter the bay and they filter out some of the sand and trap some of the sand and sediment whereas with a wall you know the waves just kind of hit that wall and bounce off and take some of the sand and sediment away so it almost does worse damage when, when with some of the walls So those living shorelines function like kind of like breakwaters and they really help. And it just seemed like another irony that in the shadow of, you know, the, the, the biggest military and greatest, biggest military and Navy in the world that the lowly oyster was among our best choices for coastal defense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, in this chapter in particular, and I don't want to hang here because there's so many good stories to tell from the book. That what I noticed was that tension between, like you mentioned, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and and what their idea was, as opposed to some of the ideas that the Corps of Engineers might have. And so maybe if as we go through the chapters, and you can touch on a little bit here, talk a little about that tension between the the difference in technologies. So oysters being a a technology but then you got the core of engineers that are really thinking of technology in a different way
0: yeah I mean I guess um I think some of them may come may see the value in some of the oysters of the living shoreline although they probably would yeah I mean they've got they're looking sometimes at, at big dollars and um yeah they often want to put in I guess breakwaters which are usually uh more, um, sub, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say substantial, but, um, uh, rocks and other, other kinds of, uh, you know, structures to help, uh, secure coast or, um, so it'd be big engineering type of, uh, of plans. Uh, I mean, the person I talked to from the core, um, was interested, was talking about Tangier Island and, and what they could do for Tangier Island. And, um, And Tangier Island has, you know, is, is low. Um, They're seeing erosion. They're seeing sea level rise, although the mayor thinks it's erosion when it's probably also sea level rise. And, and they do cost estimates for what Tangier Island might need. And I think the figure was something like $30 million for coastal protection. Um, But the problem is, is the core is also kind of bound by certain rules and guidelines and, to justify $30 million. I think they also have to look at things like, you know, the cost of the, the sort of real estate, the economic, uh, you know, the, 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 fish and, um, what do they call those ecological services? So they have to look at these kind of complicated formulas to justify going ahead with a project. Um, and they, and they have to do the studies and that can take a long time. And there's, in a way on places like Tangier, there's not a lot of time. And then with places like Tangier, which is a real small fishing community of about 450 people, you know, they need maybe $30 million in infrastructure or something, or, 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 you know, or that whatever technology the core recommends, um, including they, they want to, I think sort of do a lot of like sand renourishment and things like that, uh, which is basically kind of like spraying sand onto the beach to help, um i guess raise some of the some of the beach but they've got to do these cost estimates but then you've got norfolk which is i don't know a million or more i forgot billion dollar economy and if they need help you know then there's a lot of complicated choices to make about about where those resources should go Um, i mean the core usually protects harbors um Uh, usually there's some sort of economic or strategic value. And so, and that wasn't always the case. And I think the Chesapeake Bay Foundation was looking at it uh, maybe in a more holistic way and not just uh, this is, you know, this is what we need to prioritize.
1: Yeah, thanks for elaborating on that. And one of the things I want to point out is just the, detail you use in the naming of the chapter so I want to move I want to move now to the third chapter Um, one of my favorite places talking about the Outer Banks of North Carolina Um, and you named it the proximity of far away climate change comes to the alligator you tell us a little bit more about who you engage with uh, in North Carolina
0: Sure. And I, yeah. Um, I went to the Outer Banks and I, uh, I wanted to talk to some people in the Alligator Wildlife Refuge. So I talked to the person who was managing it then. His name was Mike Bryant. And um, I had heard that the Alligator Wildlife Refuge, which is just before you get to the Outer Banks, had a large population of bear and red wolves. And I thought, well, and then but they were also seeing. um some effects of, of sea level rise, they were seeing these, these ghost trees. Um, so basically the salt water was coming into some of these ditches that were used to make the roads that you use to travel, um, to the outer banks and the salt water was coming into those ditches and then starting to kill some of the trees and that's called, those are called ghost forests. So after I talked to them and I learned about their plans and again, they had also been using some, um, uh, living shoreline kinds of, of ideas to help protect some of the shoreline on the Outer Banks, talked to some folks at the Nature Conservancy and others. Um, and I think I talked to some people in the Outer Banks. Um, then I went to, um, put my kayak in at, uh, what's called Milltail Creek, just to paddle for a little bit, maybe get a perspective on things. Um, uh, maybe think about the day's conversation in my head. I was even trying to go over my notes and think about how I was going to structure this, how I was going to order this. And, um, and I was even thinking, well, how am I really going to end this? And what's my point going to be? And just about that at that very moment, an alligator turned and, and splashed. And uh, I saw a kind of a flash of a, of what might've been a jaw. I'm not sure if I saw teeth, but teeth are kind of beside the point. They came with the body. And, um, and it, you know, it created this just, just sort of rush of, of, of intensity and feeling. And, and that was kind of an opening into thinking about what's called the reptilian brain. and the alligator is a, is a reptile. And the reptilian brain is our fear center. And our fear center is, is you know, kind of uh, way back in our brainstem. It's the earliest, perhaps, or, or evolutionarily at least, you know we share it with with reptiles, and you know we have more sophisticated functions, but that reptilian brain sometimes gets first call it's the flight or uh, fight kind of instinct instinct and so I kind of write about how um, I wanted to do either one of those either fly either fly or hang on to my paddle and fight if I had to but um, and then I thought, and that's the thing about climate change is it doesn't activate that fear center and so i called it the proximity of far away because i was trying to get into how climate change seems like this kind of far off projection far off model and if it could be closer if it could be more i guess alligator like um uh, then we'd want to do something about it um and and at the same time um you know so so what i'm trying to suggest is there's an urgency the climate change that some of our models and projections etc just don't just don't activate in us um of course the, the we, we need that higher function to plan and to think about what we have to do um but it's almost like we need that i don't know fear center to get activated to get us moving um and uh so that was a fun one to write because and, and I and I've, what, what's funny is I've I've read that chapter in places. and That usually goes over pretty well because I kind of joke about the the ending and how the I didn't want the ending to be something like um, professor's legs torn off by by reptile or um, you know writer fa- writer's body found floating in lake. I didn't want that to be the ending, and um, uh, so that usually gets a laugh. Um, and no one, and then I got home and I told my wife and kids and I said, you know, I went to the alligator wildlife refuge and I saw an alligator and they said, well, what did you expect? You were in a refuge called alligator. Only I didn't quite expect it. Um, I mean, I'd read that it was a possibility, but, uh, I don't know, you know, and then, and the think about the alligator wildlife refuge is alligators are kind of at the Northern edge of their range, you know, So, and they're kind of a nice success story. So I was also thinking about the adaptations of, Of the alligator and how i don't know they're kind of you know needed to keep uh some of the i don't know small mammal population down so that there is some some coast um but yeah that was a good one to write yeah
1: yeah and maybe this is a good transition so the next chapter is about south carolina but you told us a little bit about that fish out of water story so maybe we could we could juxtapose the the fear conversation, right? That fear center with what you talk about in chapter five. So you start to get into this optimism bias, um, which I think helps us a little bit because it, it, you start to touch on faith in technology. And the title of that chapter is "Ebb Tide Optimism: Ghosts of the Golden Nile." So tell us a little bit more about what happened in Georgia.
0: So one of the main things that happened in Georgia. I mean, I met some really great people in Georgia that are doing some good things. Um, and, but ultimately I went to Cumberland Island National Sea, uh, Cumberland Island National Park. And I had gone there on the spur of the moment because uh, a woman who lives on the island, Carol Ructichel, um who's somewhat famous. She's uh, um, profiled in a 1973 article by John McPhee, um, who's uh, one of my favorite writers and um and also in a book called untamed but she i thought well she's been there forever and if she's seen changes to the shore surely she will know um but she could meet us on spur of the moment so we went and i I found some information about a hiking or a place to camp and i think i looked on a map and kind of guessed at how far it was um and it turns out that the park ranger said it was 11 miles. And I think from my calculation, which might've been used, like make doing that, you know, put your finger on the scale. And <laughs> I thought it was about five or six or seven miles. And I thought about how I do that often when I'm about to, I don't know, take people on a hike or a paddle or whatever. I sometimes kind of downplay the distance or downplay the danger. And that led to this idea of, yeah, of optimism bias where, where we, we kind of look at the available information and we maybe overestimate or underestimate, I suppose, that underestimate the danger and overestimate our own abilities. Um, And yeah, I, I think at the end, at the end of that, you know, I talked to Carol and Carol wasn't able to talk about how sea turtles were affected by climate change. And that was one of the really interesting things is that sea turtles have all these adaptations and they've survived these mass extinctions and they've survived you know, when there were glaciers off the coast and when there were um, big changes. They'd been around for 250 million years. So they're almost like a symbol of the resilience of nature. Um, and then the last night we were there, we were camping on the coast and we had to go out and walk the beach, see if we could see one. And sure enough, we did. And I think, I, you know, I try to describe that feeling of the, seeing this massive I don't know, 300 pound creature coming out of the inky depths of the, of the ocean and spray is hitting it. And we wanted to get close to it, but if we got close to it, we were, um, altering its course or whatever. And but at the end, I was thinking about how, how that's the thing as I, oh, I also underestimated the amount of gas I had in my stove and you needed to boil water on parts of Cumberland. Um, and, so I was talking about how yeah, optimism bias allows us to put our faith in other things. Maybe it's technology, maybe it's a supreme being. Um, but I said, it's, we kind of who have to do the work. It's we who have to check to make sure there's enough fuel for the fire. Um, at the same time, I thought, yeah, those, those, those sea turtles are a great demonstration of the resilience of nature, but um but I think I end that chapter by talking about how I don't really want to mislead you. I don't want to mislead you about, how the dis- about the distance, even though sea turtles have made it. And perhaps we could too if we adapt. I don't want to mislead you about the distance we have to go. Thank
1: you. And the next chapter is even more interesting with the title. So we've got The Octopus in the Basement. Could you elaborate a little bit more? You told us a little about your encounters with uh, Gore's former pilot in Florida, but could you elaborate
0: a little bit more on your time in Florida? Sure. I mean, the oct- octopus in the basement was something that happened in uh, in Miami. I think it came in with one of those king tides, and king tides are like an especially high spring tide um, that happens uh, once a month usually. And when a tide is extra high, <clears throat> and there was an octopus – in a parking garage basement um so it's kind of like the new i guess the new abnormal we could call it Um, and in florida there was a lot that uh i don't know could seem kind of strange i mean one of the things i was wrestling with in florida was you know i think i talked to one planner and he was telling me about how he had a hard time getting younger people to come out uh, to some of the planning meetings, because probably because they work and they have kids, et cetera, um, and yet it's going to be those younger people that are affected. Um, now, on that trip, I had my son with me, and we were on, I think, a, a, a winter break together. And um, I was also talking to uh, several people who were who were older, another planner, talked about how they have a hard time getting transportation bonds, uh bonds for public transportation passed because the voting block in Florida tends to skew older. Um, now as we were driving around, we went to we went to Miami, we went to Coral Gables and talked to the mayor there and learned a lot about what's happening. Um, I learned that the word of the year was surreal. <laughs> Um, you know, and surreal fit with that octopus in the basement, and surreal fit with a number of things um, I went into the big Cypress I went into the everglades I went into big Cypress, and of course, while I was doing that and just kind of mesmerized by um, big Cypress, my son was also listening to a soccer game on the radio, so I don't know we were <clears throat> on the one hand listening to different kinds of birds um squawks, etc., that are in the Everglades and, and looking at the cypress trees, but then hearing this English announcer on a soccer game. But it seemed to somehow fit with just a sense of um, how this picture is just not, it's not quite sinking in. I mean, these signs are not quite sinking in. The octopus, um, other things in Florida. When I went to Key West, um, so I went to Big Pine Key in Florida and talked to a person named Chris Berg at the, na- at the uh, Nature Conservancy, and he was real knowledgeable. And he showed us, um, I don't know, this almost moonscape, this place that's getting uh, water that's coming in. And so they're going to have big problems there. Well, one person said that Florida gets water on four sides, water from above, water from both sides of the peninsula, and then because it's limestone, they get water from, from below. And so they can't just wall off like you could in New Orleans or Louisiana. Um, so they have problems. And then we went to Key West and we talked to some people there and we went to Sloppy Joe's, which is the bar that Hemingway gave a name to. And I think I asked somebody in the bar, well, you know, what do you think? What are you going to do about storms and sea level rise? And I think he was starting to um, enjoy his drink, We we can say. And he said something like, "What really can we do? What can we do to you know we're going to ride out the storm?" I think somebody else said, and what what could we do um, And then I had to drive all the way home because of something else, and um, at the end of that, I let my son take the wheel, and so that's how I kind of ended that chapter. was it with a young person at the wheel while us old folks were lost in a surreal dream um, we might have you know I, I said something like um when we woke up, we barely recognized the place before us, and we might have done something about it.
1: Yes. Yes. I think that's key to the future is thinking about what the next generation and and how they're gonna address this. And so as we as we move to finish up some of these chapters, um there's there's three more remaining chapters in the book. It's nine chapters total. Talk to us a little bit about the planning, because planning is a big part of the book. You're, you're addressing planners all over the place in all these different areas. How is the planning, what what technologies are being discussed, what um, methods of uh, resilience are being discussed? Um, talk to us a little bit more detail as we go through. We're going to hit Louisiana, Texas, and West Virginia. Tell us a little bit more about the planning conversations and, and what's on the table there.
0: So in the, um, let's see, in New Orleans, it was, um, well, New Orleans, I think one of the big things was there's some pump stations, you know, so New Orleans is below sea level. So they've got to sometimes pump some of their water out. Um, they also had, and I don't, I forget the dollar figures, but the dollar figures are in the book, but they've had, you know, since Katrina, they've spent a lot, this, when, during Katrina, they lost some of their wetlands, the wetland buffer that helped kind of protect um, the city. So then they had to install a, a kind of Dutch style um, gate barrier um, to help protect the city. So they seem, it seems like they're in much better shape, but that's, you know, that's, um, it costs a lot. I mean, that's one of the things that we're going to have to have a national conversation about is, uh, you know, what we need to spend on. And Galveston, Texas, they need something similar. Um, they're calling that, um the ike dike which is kind of because of hurricane ike in 2008 um, which uh had a pretty bad effect and it happened um was it i think it was 2 days before um the financial crash uh crisis of 2008 September 15th um so they might have had a discussion about doing something about adaptation at the time then but that, you know, that economic conversation definitely took over. So they also need this giant kind of perhaps flood barrier, flood barrier that you can kind of open and close, close when a storm is about to hit, but open to let ships out. That would protect the shipping channel, the Houston shipping channel. Um, You know, so in addition to those, I mean, those are sort of um, uh, infrastructure projects and they, they cost a lot. When I got to West Virginia, it almost seems like, seemed like it was more of a cultural infrastructure or cultural adaptation that people were going to have to make um, as we transition away from fossil fuels and coal. I mean, that's another technology or, I guess, transformation that's going to have to happen is that we move away from, we change not only the way we produce energy, but probably the way we we also do transportation. So when I went to West Virginia, I was trying to learn about um, a wind farm on a nearby mountain and why they didn't want that. And I talked to a supervisor who didn't want it in their community in part because of the legacy of coal. Although he did tell me that he was open to other sites, just that this one particular mountain was going to, uh, I don't know, be a eyesore, I guess. But they were o- interested in wind. Uh, another community was trying to to help. Another organization called the Coalfield Development Corporation was trying to get people in West Virginia, former miners, coal miners, et cetera, trained to install some solar technology. Um, so I was impressed that there were some good things happening in West Virginia. It's just that they are in, uh, uh, they've lost a lot of jobs as coal has, coal mining has decreased. Um, although what's hard, the hard conversation there is it, ha- it seems experts say that it has more to do with market forces more to do with the transition to natural gas than it really does any kind of, quote, war on coal, unquote. Um, so that's what I was finding out in terms of the planning is, is you know, getting also into the what we can do. Um, one of the things I also found out in Texas is that Texas leads the nation in wind. Texas, um, I think they're fifth or sixth in solar. You know, so they invested in some of the infrastructure. To help ranchers put up wind farms and some of those ranchers you know now don't even need to have cows graze because they can make that money with their with their wind farms someone else in texas was also trying to put a price on carbon and that's something else that's going to happen and i think there's a i think jim baker at rice university or 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 jim baker from texas former secretary of state has also called for uh you know some kind of carbon pricing carbon tax and um and that would be good um i think that would be good in conjunction with some other things to kind of help us uh i guess stop binging on carbon and 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 really take care of that you know that future generation that is feeling the urgency um perhaps more than us old folks lost in a surreal dream
1: <laughs> yeah i think urgency is a good word to to leave our audience with. I want to thank you again, Rick, for just taking up a big chunk of your time to tell us a little bit more about Sudden Spring and the stories that it brings. And I think there's a lot more that's in there that we only scratch the surface of in this conversation. So let's finish up um, with one last question. What are you working on now, Rick?
0: Well, I guess I'm um, at the moment, what's taking up my time is still some of my teaching and um, and I guess trying to, I don't know, promote the book and answer questions. I'm doing some readings. Um, I mean, if I was going to do a follow up, I, you know, I, I mean, I wanted to localize climate change for this book, but I was going to do a follow up. I'd like to go farther afield. I'd like to learn about, I don't know, what's happening in some of the, you know, um, I I read about what's happening, what could happen in the Himalayas. And how if, you know, if there's glacier melt there, that could really affect some communities that depend on the, that, you know, those glaciers for some of their water, um, some of the low-lying places abroad A- in Asia, maybe Thailand or Bangladesh could be affected. Um, so if I could go even farther, um, I would, uh, for sure, um, it's going to be interesting. Um, I think one person said to me, you know, one person in Florida said, if some of those glaciers go both at the poles uh, and other places, we could be talking about 10 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And that puts, you know, that, that's, that could be chaos unless we plan, you know, unless we change and uh, change what we're doing. So an international focus. I like it. I'm excited. Hopefully we
1: can bring you back on here to talk about some of the planning going on internationally. Well, once again, I just want to thank you for joining us, Rick. Um, It was great to hear about the stories and the different ways that uh, climate change South is
0: adapting. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it.